This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Ahead of Memorial Day weekend, an attack on the United States military from within. An electronic attack on United States military computer systems in Guam. A simulated attack on the greatest American warship ever to sail. And a panel discussion prompted in part by listener feedback. All this and more coming up next on Trumpet Hour. Welcome to Trumpet Hour on this Memorial Day weekend, 2023. I'm Philip Nice, and I am with some of the staff writers of the Philadelphia Trumpet and thetrumpet.com. Our task and purpose is to provide you with the most important news of the week. In our Edmond, Oklahoma studio with me are Jeremiah Jacques. Hello there. And Andrew Miller. Hello. And in our studio in Edstone, England, are Mihailo Zekic. Good to be here. And Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. Andrew Miller, your task is to watch the United States and related nations, a region that we call Anglo-America. What is the news this week in Anglo-America? Yeah, in Anglo-America this week, we found out that Canada's household debt is now officially higher than the country's entire gross domestic product. The uh, grocery store Target has gone woke with a new queer clothing line for children and toddlers. And the Colorado Education Association officially voted for a Marxist platform at their 97th annual delegate assembly. Now, your main story that you've prepared this week concerns the United States military. As we head into Memorial Day, Monday, of course, is Memorial Day here in the United States, home of Trumpet Hour. And Veterans Day is on November 11th. And, of course, it honors those who have served in the United States military. But Memorial Day honors those who have died in the United States military. It was originally Decoration Day on which Americans visited military cemeteries. And if you've ever visited a military cemetery or uh, be at the Tomb of the Unknowns in Arlington or, or a local military in your uh, town, it's, uh, it reminds you of what it took to, uh, to preserve uh, the freedoms that America has. And uh, it's a, a sobering certainly a sobering thing. I once saw an illustration of kind of a political cartoon, but it was pretty serious. It was uh, uh, people uh, enjoying familiar Memorial Day activities, picnics and kids running and playing and throwing footballs and and, uh, so forth. Uh, But it was built upon uh, soldiers. There were soldiers underneath. There was blood underneath that. And it just kind of reminds you of, of the seriousness of of uh, what it takes to to preserve a country in this world. Um, so I think what you're going to bring us on the military heading into M- Memorial Day weekend is even more important and even more sobering. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Uh, a lot of people don't think much about it, but when you look at the vast arc of, uh, of human history, Uh, The past 70 years have been extremely peaceful, all things uh, considered. I mean, there's there's 
uh, plenty of wars and conflicts in different corners of the world, but there hasn't been any world wars since World War II. Uh, and that's largely due to the effects of the American military. So uh, anything that could, uh, could weaken or destroy the American military is something to definitely pay attention to. And actually, one of the uh, uh, articles I have in front of me on this next topic that says... Um, uh, in regards to the American military, it said, if a foreign power had infiltrated the United States and was trying to weaken and destroy our military, what would it do differently? The answer is not much. Uh, and so you're talking about this is, um, well, I'll tell you the story first. Uh, there's a group of 160 former generals, admirals, and other officers uh, who uh, titled themselves the Flag Officers for America. They publish open letters periodically. I've written about them before. Uh, they can speak uh, more openly than any current generals or admirals because they're not actually in active duty anymore. They're, they've either been fired or retired. And so they did an open letter this week warning that um, what they call diversity, equity, and inclusion, which um, it uses the DEI uh, acronym, uh, is destroying our military from the inside out and the american people need to know about it and so uh rather than listen to me try to explain to you what diversity equity and inclusion are uh, i've actually got uh, a little bit of a clip from lieutenant colonel matthew lohmeyer uh who was uh, a lieutenant colonel in space force until a couple years ago when he was fired uh for a book he wrote titled Irresistible Revolution, Marxism's Goal of Conquest, and the Unmaking of the American Military. So here's his description of what DEI is. What I mean by Marxist propaganda, because there's a number of ways you could tackle that, and um, there are plenty of people online now that are doing an excellent job educating the American people about what that exactly means. But what I meant by it initially, and what tipped tipped me off to the fact that this was in fact Marxist ideological subversive effort that was underway across broader American society and the military mm -hmm. was the, the stereotypical oppressor versus oppressed narrative. Okay. Yeah. And whereas in Marx and Engels, 1848 communist manifesto that had largely to do with economic class stratifications, it has taken many faces and have gone by different names and its most recent vitriolic iteration, unfortunately, that came out of academia and is now rampant in this country and is, and is called things like the diversity, equity, and inclusion industry, for example, is critical race theory. Mm -hmm. And if you just learn about critical race theory alone for a little while, it is abundantly apparent to you that it has a Marxist lineage of ideas and, um, and, and, and schools of thought within academia over the last hundred years, back to critical thought, critical theory, um, that, that is started by Marxists uh, when they, this is, a, this is an overgeneralization, but when they come here to flee the Third Reich, they, some people come here to flee the Third Reich, they're Marxists, uh, and they end up at Columbia University, and, and they're at the Teachers College, and they're they're pushing the communist agenda in this country. It doesn't really take hold then, but that's the beginnings of what, um, what in the university setting led to what we're seeing today. Yeah. So as you heard there, uh, as is most Marxist initiatives, it's all uh, couched in very, <laughs> like noble sounding language, diversity, equity, uh, inclusion, things that America was founded on. But rather than actually trying to look out for minorities and other people um, 
in the U.S. military uh, and solve current problems. It's actually like looking back at past problems, stirring up resentment between uh, classes, between black officers and white officers and between male officers and uh, female officers uh, and other things like that. And just really trying to split the United States into to hostile fraction uh, factions. And as uh, Lieutenant Colonel Loemer points out there, and the Flag Officers for America, it's really based uh, on critical race theory, uh, which is a form of cultural Marxism that's looking at weakening a nation from the inside out by taking <laughs> the one institution that defends it from all foreign enemies uh, and actually ripping that apart. And so the uh, the Flag Officers for America's letter uh, really goes through uh, a lot, uh, quite a few of the programs that they're using DEI in here and making the case that that uh, other analyst I quoted earlier said is that this is basically a full-fledged attack on the United States, uh, but an attack from within instead of an attack from without. So as you said there, this we've we've enjoyed a lifetime or so of comparative peace since the last world war. And as you said, it has been owed when it comes right down to it to the power of the United States military. That's it's something the world has has never seen. Something uh, of this size, of this scope, of the technology, the strategy, and the tactics, and and the economy behind the military. But it it is also owed to the moral principles of that military and of the nation that it stands for. And now we're seeing that under a direct attack. Right. That's absolutely, um, yeah, that's absolutely true because it's uh, some civilizations in the past have had uh, professional militaries. Prussia was like that, where you actually almost have like a warrior class. Uh, America's never really been like that. You've always... Uh, either conscripted or volunteer from the people so that the military is a reflection of the people. But now with the, <laughs> the divisions amongst the people, you're seeing divisions amongst the military that are being deliberately stirred up by these DEI programs, which prophetically is really significant because there's a, one of the most sobering prophecies in the Bible. Uh, it's in Ezekiel 5, um, talks about end-time Israel, which is the United States and Britain primarily uh, falling um, into a, a great tribulation type period where it even talks about like a third of the people dying in pestilence, a third of the people dying in a foreign invasion, and then a third of the people being led away captive. And that word pestilence, uh, now normally that carries a little bit more of a specific meaning to disease, but back then it was just more <laughs> disease, uh, famine, riots, crime, uh, other bad things that are internal within a nation, uh, which explains why, uh, I mean, you look at the world today, and I mean, there are rising militaries in China and the European Union uh, that uh, in not too long will be able to challenge the United States. But uh, you also have the point is like, so they wouldn't even necessarily have to challenge the United States as it currently stands. Uh, because you get these DEI uh, Marxist infiltration type things, and you could actually have the military rip itself apart from within to where America doesn't have a military at all, uh, which is kind of what that pestilence period it is. It's that like the first part of this tribulation is you have like a third of the people uh, <laughs> dying in like an anarchy period where and the military is not defending himself, defending it from that because it's actually fighting itself. 
which then a foreign enemy can take uh, to take advantage of. Uh, and this this letter from the flag officers for America is a. Uh, doesn't put quite things in quite as stark a terms as I just did, but definitely talks about like the threat that the military is defending us, and it's being ripped apart from within by this this Marxist infiltration, and uh, and Americans just really need to be aware of uh, aware of what's happening because as like political divisions get worse, the Biden administration's trying to push the military to go woke, but then you have other organizations like the Flag Officers for America, which are definitely um, more firm in the the Trump campaign. And uh, if as these things unfold, you could actually even see uh, the political divisions between Republican and Democrat become uh, military divisions between conservative and, and liberal soldiers. That's a chilling thing to think about. You've written on this recently in A Woke Military Endangers Us All. You can find that at thetrumpet.com. A Woke Military Endangers Us All. And when we go to DEFCON 1 and the alarm of war sounds, who is it that will go to the battle, if anyone? It's a chilling question. The, dis the discipline and the respect and the deep belief for which you will give your life, the things you will die for, those principles are what are under attack inside the United States military. And as you bring to us there, the highest ranking officers who are free to speak about it are sounding an alarm right now. So thank you, Mr. Miller, for that report. Richard Palmer watches European affairs for Trumpet Hour and for the Trumpet.com, where he is the assistant managing editor. He takes care of a lot of the scheduling and, and uh, managing the stories and the authors for the Trumpet.com. If you haven't already subscribed to the trumpet.com email, the trumpet brief, you can do that right there at the uh, homepage, the trumpet.com. So, Richard, what has been going on in European affairs this week? So, Greece held elections with some kind of interesting results. Greece is one of those countries, like the UK, like the US, that the political system does not normally uh, return a coalition. Uh, this case, nobody got a majority. There were a kind of a bit of time there where it looks like you could have some kind of unstable coalition come and cobble together, which made a lot of people nervous. Uh, remember, Greece is what exploded the financial crisis. They still have youth unemployment of 25 percent, major problems that I think just wouldn't get fixed under a coalition government. However, coalition failed to form in the subsequent days. Now it's confirmed they're going to hold a fresh round of elections and Greece, the home of democracy, has a very complicated voting system. Whoever comes first next time around gets some bonus seats. So it seems likely they'll be able to form a, a new stable government now. Uh, in Germany, you had some controversial comments from the uh, Alternative for Deutschland leader. He's the leader of this pretty right-wing party over there. And um, you had a leader about five years ago make some very similar comments. And there was massive outcry, and he was forced to apologize this particular leader, he talked about uh, Germany not needing to be ashamed of its history, playing down all of the remembering of it of, of World War II, being proud of older history, you know, this kind of thing. Uh, and this time around, unlike five years ago, there was no outcry. And I think that's a powerful indication of the change that is going on in Germany. And then uh, you may remember there was this huge scandal in Germany a few years ago where the uh, Germany's Secret Service was funding money to a far-right terrorist group. And the links there were murky. 
there was somebody, the far right, the, the terrorist group literally murdered someone in a cafe where a member of Germany's intelligence service was stationed, was sitting. Uh, this member claimed they did not notice the murder, walked around the body and left, and that, that it was just a big coincidence. Nobody believes that. The news from this week is uh, people are wanting an investigation, but allies of Olaf Schultz, the current chancellor, are blocking a deeper investigation into that. He was the leader of the state where this happened at the time. Uh, so this raises the potential that he could be involved as well. So uh, a couple interesting angles there. Scholz's future uh, could be, um, I guess, endangered by this scandal. He could make it a go, go away. He might not. Uh, and then, as, as you're indicating there, just this far-right movement in Germany that the Trump has kept an eye on for a long time. Uh, seemingly small, seemingly insignificant, seemingly shunned and ostracized by most of Germany, but uh, so too was uh, Nazism at one point. And not so small these days. The the AFD is polling on close to 20%. They're uh, actually within spitting distance of becoming Germany's largest party. They're almost, they're very, very close to being the second largest. So a way of thinking among German voters and German leaders that is not going away. I'm sure you and the Trumpet.com writers will keep a close eye on the news feeds, both English language and German language, to give us a sense of the prevailing attitudes and the ascendant attitudes there in Germany. But for the biggest story in Europe and far beyond Europe, really, you're taking us inside the banks, Mr. Palmer. Tell us about that. So you may remember the Eurobor or the LIBOR scandal from just over 10 years ago. So uh, you know, maybe you need to think back. Our Trumpet article that we wrote at the time said about this scandal that if the allegations prove true, this is by far the biggest financial scandal the world has ever seen. The whole Anglo-American financial system from head to toe is sick. And that's an understatement. So this was a huge scandal. And, and what this was was basically uh, the LIBOR and Eurobor uh, these are statistics that a lot of things are based on, and it's what interest rates banks are charging on average to lend money to other banks. And the way this is created is regulators phone up banks and say, hey, what interest rate are you charging other banks? And they say, well, we're charging this amount. I mean, it's a bit more electronic these days, but it's basically, you know, it's based on trust to a certain extent. And what happened in this Eurobor LIBOR scandal is that it emerged that a whole host of banks... Uh, People were lying. People were giving off you're fudging these numbers so that people on the trading floor could make masses amounts of money. Uh, you'd have somebody over in the trading floor saying, hey, can you help me out here? I'll make X million dollars for in this trade. If LIBOR goes down by 0.1 of a percent, can you help me out, please? And they're like, sure, you know, I'll do and and you know, and then the other guy, they've got all these phone transcripts, guys, and the other one's like, Great bottle of Bollinger's on, on its way to you. Really appreciate it. You know, we'll have a big bash after work. Thanks, man. Uh, this kind of thing was going on. Uh, I think there were about half or oh, 19 people were convicted. Nine people went to jail as part of this this scandal. And you know, we had a that trumpet print article talking about and trying to just get across what a huge scandal it was. What we found out this week is that actually it was much bigger than we realized 10 years ago. Uh, so Rigged is a new book by Andy Verity. It's being published or serialized in The Times. And I, I, I think this is the underrated story of the week. It's somehow not gotten really any traction. 
But what this showed is that in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis, it wasn't simply individual traders rigging the LIBOR and Euribor rates. It was governments. The British government, the French government, uh, the Federal Reserve in the United States, you know, people in Europe were putting pressure on banks and saying, you report a lower rate. Because they wanted a narrative to get out there that says things are going back to normal. No, people aren't freaking out as much. They're not panicking. Look, banks are lending to each other now at lower interest rates. So they were they were putting pressure on banks to lie. And the banks generally went along with it. That was the first set of revelations. The second set of revelations is that then the FBI got wind of this. And the FBI began a pretty serious investigation. They were you know, pulling over top, you know, they were talking to banking executives in the UK. They were talking to people, I think, at the Bank of England. Uh, they were uncovering all of this corruption and had a lot of evidence of, of this kind of corruption going on in France, in the UK, and I believe in the US as well. And they did absolutely nothing with it. You know, they were sitting down with interviews in 2010. So this is 12, 13 years ago. They found out everything that was happening and then covered it all up. And the point that the whole point of this article that we wrote at the time, the death of Anglo-American banking, and this was this was um, by uh, Mr. Brad McDonald and Mr. Robert Morley, is that a solid banking system is, is based on trust and on morality. And if you're going to have a um, a stable government, a stable um, economy. It's only going to work if people are honest and if everybody's lying and cheating, that's a recipe for economic disaster. And they basically said, well, well look, this LIBOR scandal shows everybody's lying and cheating. It's rampant. It's, it's at all of the big banks. Now we know it's not just at all of the big banks. It's at central government. It's at central banks and it's at governments. And in some ways, it was the governments that came off worse. The central banks were the ones that were, kind of, at least in the Bank of England, were the ones that they kind of went along. But they were also like, oh, we're not quite sure we really should be doing this. Um, whereas it was, it was the government coming through. And so it's, that was a big scandal alone that you had all of this corruption. It's, it's bigger than we realized. So we thought it was, quote, by far the biggest financial scandal that the world has ever seen, as you said, as we wrote there in the Trumpet and the Trumpet.com. And yet it was much bigger than we thought. And it comes down to the fact that they were lying, Richard Palmer. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it reminds me, and I think the authors probably had this passage in mind in, in Isaiah 1, where it talks about the whole head is sick. You know, the, the whole the, the whole body is diseased. It's like wherever you look, there are problems. And the more you look, the closer you look, the more sickness, the more disease uh, you see. And I think it also ties into an article that Trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry had in our latest Trumpet print edition, as well as that one from 10 years ago, where here's that article, America's banking crisis will unite Europe. And here what you're having is you know, dishonesty causing a crisis in the Anglo-American banking system. And it's going to blow it up at some point. Well, that's going to, and, and Mr. Flurry's point is, well, that's going to lead to Europe replacing it. There's a lot of scriptures that talk about this prophesied rise of Europe. And it, you know, Revelation 18 is one of the key scriptures that we talk about to, to, to go to, to see details of this rise of this European power. The next chapter, Revelation 18, has all of these details about it being a massive economic power. It replaces the Anglo-American financial system. And as Mr. Flurry explains in that article, the collapse of that system it really paves the way for for Europe to to rise, 
And yes, European leaders, you know, France, they're caught up in the same corruption. But this is still very much the kind of American-led financial system. And so you're going to see this lead to that blowing up in our faces and then Europe replacing it with their own financial system as prophesied in the Bible, which they then use to punish, shut out, and ultimately bring down the United States and Britain. And if the banks go down and the American and British economies collapse, what then? Well, we're not far from finding out, it would seem. Our banking, our economy, much of our real-world lives really do then depend on telling the truth, much, much more than just a down-ballot issue or just a lifestyle choice. Thank you for that update, Mr. Palmer, on what appears to be by far the biggest financial scandal the world has ever seen, as the Trumpet.com reported. It didn't go away after it left the headlines, so please do keep tracking those underrated and underreported stories. Again, the result of this ongoing collapse of American banks is spelled out there at the Trumpet.com in Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry's article, America's Banking Crisis Will Unite Europe. Mihailo Zekic, you watch the Middle East region for us. Give us the main news there for this week. Well, as Josue Michels mentioned when he covered for me last week, Turkey is due for a runoff election this Sunday. We could see a change in the Turkish presidency. We'll be sure to keep our eyes on that. On Thursday, Iran unveiled a new uh, iteration of its Koromshar ballistic missile, um, claiming it's the the fourth iteration, even though uh, analysts have only known of two so far. This one uh, can apparently reach all the way to Israel, which of course is putting the or ma- making is Israel a bit unnerved. And we've talked a lot about uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran uh, in this program getting closer together. This week, Saudi Arabia uh, did another normalization with a dictatorship, and that's Justin Trudeau's Canada. <laughs> On uh, the 24th, uh, Canada and Saudi Arabia agreed to restore full diplomatic ties, which were frayed um, during a spat in 2018. So those would be some of the main stories from the Middle East this week. So what Middle East development should we know the most about in the time we have? Well, this is a bit of a, um ongoing development story and involves the uh, chief of the central bank of lebanon riyad salame he has is facing multiple arrest warrants technically some of them were from a little bit earlier this month but there have been some new ones this week uh france issued one for him the, the, that is the french government issued a warrant for him on may 16th after he refused to appear in court in paris um, on May 23rd, Reuters reported that Germany has also put out a uh, a warrant for his arrest. The the UK, Switzerland, Belgium, Luxembourg, they're all investigating Salome. Interpol has a warrant for him uh, to uh, uh, arrest him on behalf of France. Now, what's all this going on? Why is he such a... Why does everybody want him? Well, he's been in uh, the position he's in since 1993 and he's had a lot of time to do a lot of fishy things with the lebanese economy one of his biggest uh, allegations is that him and his brother embezzled about 330 million dollars from the lebanese central bank between 2002 and 2015 
Um, Europe, of course, is heavily involved in Lebanon with giving them economic bailouts and uh, trying to encourage reform, conditioning bailouts to reform. And they're a little bit fed up with uh, Salome and his actions, and they want to hold him to account. It remains to be seen if anything will happen from this. Lebanon has um, so far ignored the uh, the red notice that Interpol put out on him, saying that they'll try him at home. We'll see if any justice actually comes up for that. But as far as Lebanon is concerned, this is the equivalent of multiple world governments putting out an arrest warrant for Fed Chairman uh, Jerome Powell. So, as and in this case, this, this is a man even more uh, powerful than powell in his position because he's been uh salome has been doing this since the early 1990s so a bit of a escalation between european and lebanese relations so again this is something most people are not probably seeing on their nightly fox news or cnn or or what have you maybe maybe in the in the latter portions of of the show or or in other uh less prominent places uh, the governor of the Bank of Lebanon. So why have you zeroed in on this story for this uh, week? A number of reasons. For one thing, Lebanon is in a really, really, really bad state of affairs. Since 2019, the economy has been in free fall. The Lebanese pound has lost over 98% of its pre-crisis value to now. People are, most of the population is in poverty right now. And Salome is basically the man responsible for that. He's done a lot of really shifty stuff moving around. He's uh, uh, encouraged borrow, uh, investors to invest money so he could pay back his other um, uh, lenders. And some critics even call say that Salome has turned Lebanon into the world's largest Ponzi scheme. So, I mean, obviously it doesn't mean an impact, say, listeners in North America or other places too, too much. But he basically turned the country that used to be called the jewel of the Middle East into a failed state basket case. Um, that and you, com- you compound that with a lot of other crises Lebanon is facing since last October. They've failed to elect a president. The president has to be voted in by parliament, and there's been deadlock in that. So technically, there has been no head of state in Lebanon for over half a year. Um, There's tensions between Hezbollah, the Iranian-backed terror group that controls uh, the country, and Israel, uh, threatening potentially an escalation of war. Um, And Europe is seeing all these things, countries like France, like Germany, organizations like interpol which is based in france and they're getting to the point now where they're even willing to put out an arrest warrant for uh not like some fugitive like some international criminal mastermind which is what normally these kinds of arrest warrants for like places like interpol are for but a sitting head of a central bank in what is nominally a democracy and one that's right on Europe's doorstep, one that could potentially cause a new refugee crisis, one where, as I mentioned, Hezbollah, uh, terror groups are really active in 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 the area. And so, I mean, Lebanon has been struggling for a few years now with these kinds of problems, but it's getting to the point where countries like Germany and France are willing to put on the pressure more and start actively doing, th- doing things that normally countries wouldn't do to other countries in normal circumstances to the little country of Lebanon. But the main reason we watch what's going on in Lebanon is because of Bible prophecy. There's a 
psalm, Psalm 83, we go to it often on this show, that speaks of an alliance of different uh, peoples from the Middle East and mentions country or peoples like Edom, the Ishmaelites, Moab, the Hagarenes, uh, the inhabitants of Tyre, uh, Asher is joined with them. Uh, if you look through biblical history or secular history, an alliance like this has never formed. This is a prophecy of a future alliance. But it doesn't really make much sense unless you know the modern-day descendants of those ancient peoples. Um, Edom uh, is Turkey, for example. The Ishmaelites are Saudi Arabia and some of the other Arab nations. Most crucially for us, um, Tyre is, or the Phoenicians, rather, are the ancestral peoples of the modern Lebanese. And Asher is the ancestral peoples of modern Germany, saying that Germany and Lebanon are going to be allied in this end time. Now, you could look at another prophecy we go to often, Daniel 11, which talks about Iran and a German-led Europe and go attacking each other, going into a clash. Right now, Hezbollah, which is the main power faction in Lebanon, is allied with Iran. So, But it's not mentioned anywhere in Daniel 11 as being allied with Iran. It's mentioned being allied with Germany. So we can expect some sort of change to happen in Lebanon with the government there from one that's closer to Iran to one that switches over to Europe. Our editor-in-chief, Mr. Gerald Fleury, has spoken before, but we could even expect another civil war to happen in Lebanon. And not only are we seeing conditions there rapidly deteriorate to the point where the head of the central bank is wanted by by global authorities for uh, for crimes, the P Lebanese people are getting fed up with them and with everything else that's going on, but also you're seeing Europe getting more involved, getting bold enough to put out these arrest warrants, getting bold enough to say, okay, Lebanon, this is what we want you to do with your country. This is who we want running the show. This is what we want you doing with your economy. And they're doing it not in an underhanded way or through some overt mechanism. They're putting out an arrest warrant for the guy. And so this shows how much interest they have in Lebanon. And if our listeners want to learn more, I'd recommend they look back to the print edition or a print edition from October 2020 called The Blast That Changed Lebanon. There's two cover articles there, one by our editor-in-chief, Mr. Fleury, and one by Brent Noctegal that uh, talk about the main context was about um, the big blast that happened in Lebanon a few years ago, but the principles that they speak on still remain are with the conditions going on now. And if you would like to get up to speed on what's going on with Lebanon, why the people are upset, and what we can expect in the near future, I'd recommend looking to that issue. The Blast That Changed Lebanon from thetrumpet.com. The Blast That Changed Lebanon. Keep watching the Middle East for us, Mihailo Zekic, and its relations with Europe. Now we move over to Asia, where news keeps pouring out. Jeremiah Jacques. What has been going on in Asia that we need to be aware of? Yeah, we've got quite a stack of Asia stories this week. Russia's prime minister just visited Xi Jinping in China. Uh, quite a high-level meeting there that just shows these two nations drawing steadily closer together. Another big one is that a war game simulation shows that the Chinese People's Liberation Army could feasibly sink the U.S.'s aircraft carrier, the uh, USS Gerald R. Ford. So that's, it's the most advanced and powerful warship ever built in the history of mankind. <laughs> so uh, this simulation, though, says that China can take it out with hypersonic missiles. So that was a, you know, of course, a welcome finding for the Chinese who are determined to take over the South China Sea. And then kind of a related story here is a poll showing that more than half 
of mainland Chinese people now support a full-scale war in order to take control of Taiwan. So, you know, we may think that this is a priority just for Xi Jinping or just for him and his cadre of CCP elites, but no, this poll shows that the population of China is behind the leadership. The people are ready to fight and die to seize Taiwan. And then we've got a Russia story here. The head of the infamous Wagner Group gave a kind of a bombshell interview this week. This man's name is Prigozhin. And he said, if Vladimir Putin doesn't commit more of Russia's resources to the war on Ukraine, then the people of Russia will probably rise up and overthrow him uh, 1917 style. So, you know, it makes you wonder how much longer Prigozhin will be allowed to go without being treated to a serving of some polonium tea or, you know, defenestrated. Uh, not many Russians are allowed to say those kinds of things about Putin. So we'll see how that goes. And then another story here, the nuclear genie is apparently still expanding. News this week said Belarus will be hosting some of Russia's nuclear weapons on its soil. Russia hasn't had nuclear weapons stationed there since 1991. So that is a just a notable development. And we can be sure that the Europeans are deeply unsettled by these weapons being moved nearer to their nations. But I think the biggest story this week is that America's critical infrastructure has been hacked by Chinese state-sponsored hackers. It was on Wednesday that... Microsoft, the American tech firm, released an advisory saying that a group of Chinese hackers called Volt Typhoon have used some malicious code to infiltrate a wide range of U.S. systems. So Microsoft says that their cybersecurity software was able to detect parts of this assault. It was concentrated on Guam, the U.S. territory of Guam there in the Pacific. And it really is a stunning list of targets that the Chinese were able to infiltrate. Essentially, what they were doing was uh, targeting a, a slew of different types of organizations and different types uh, of facilities, whether that's uh, communications, manufacturing, utility, transportation, construction, maritime, government. Uh, it's basically a type of attack that is difficult to detect. Uh, it goes through small offices uh, and network equipment to help avoid detection. That was technology expert Dan Hawley there. And uh, as he said, that's just a, a wide range of targets that the Chinese were able to hack into. Now, at present, the attack appears to have been limited to just an espionage campaign, just infiltrating for the purposes of spying. But the specific systems that were targeted actually have very little value related to spying. So it looks like the real purpose is not to gather information, but to actually be able to sabotage this critical American infrastructure at a future date. So it's, it's all about disrupting these systems. The Chinese have not yet done that, but the nature of this particular code, this malicious code, means that once it's embedded, all the hackers have to do is kind of flip a switch from back in Beijing, and suddenly they're carrying out destructive assaults. So it's, it's uh, very chilling to know that this is not just some hypothetical, but that it has happened. These Chinese hackers have been conducting this campaign, mostly on Guam, since mid-2021. So they've had about two years now to infiltrate this wide range of systems. And the main purpose is to prepare for a time when China will attack Taiwan. You know, we, we know that that's among the most pressing goals of Xi Jinping. In many ways, his legitimacy is staked on his promise to pull Taiwan into China's control. He's ordered his military to be ready to take it by 2027. 
And of course, he would love nothing more than to be able to seize Taiwan without any interference from Taiwan's main security partner, the United States, and the mighty U.S. military that we heard about just a moment ago. So if China can infiltrate and destroy American systems, especially in Guam, it could give China that green light, you know, that window to seize Taiwan. I'll just read a little bit here from David Sanger. He's a cyber conflict expert writing here for the New York Times. And he, said, he says that that's exactly why China targeted Guam instead of some other location with this hacking campaign. He writes, The Chinese code raised alarms because Guam, with its Pacific ports and vast American airbase, would be a centerpiece of any American military response to an invasion or blockade of Taiwan. End quote. So, yeah, just pretty chilling there because this shows that we've moved from the time when this, you know, this Taiwan invasion was strictly in a planning phase to this week when active preparations are now known to have been being made. American systems have been infiltrated. Critical infrastructure has been compromised. And it's for the purpose of being able to destroy it once China makes its move on Taiwan, also that America's response will be crippled. So stronger and stronger moves there from China with apparently little pushback from the current United States regime. Yes. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, and I think the real significance of this is that on several occasions, Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry has written about the dangers of the U.S. military's dependence on these kinds of computer systems that are vulnerable to enemy sabotage. He's actually called this vulnerability America's Achilles heel. And he said that studying into this glaring vulnerability in America's defenses, reminded him of a prophecy recorded in Ezekiel 7. This is, uh, this chapter, you know, it's God addressing mainly the U.S. and Britain in the modern era, and he says that he will punish these nations for their rejection of him. And one of the specific ways that he will punish them is spelled out in verse 14. It says, They have blown the trumpet, even to make all ready, but none goes to the battle. So this is just an astounding picture being painted here. It's about a future time when U.S. military technology, you know, will possibly have been compromised by enemies. But whatever happens, it seems that the trumpet is kind of blown and everyone expects America to go to battle. But when that signal is given, no one goes. And Mr. Fleury writes, will it be because of a computer terrorist? So it's alarming to read a prophecy that talks about such a specific set of events and then to read this Microsoft report this week about China specifically targeting American systems so that when China decides to wage war, America will have its communications compromised and won't be able to go to battle. Our listeners can look at China Hacks Critical U.S. Infrastructure in Guam, preparing for Taiwan attack at thetrumpet.com. Just look for China hacks critical U.S. infrastructure in Guam preparing for a Taiwan attack. And uh, this illustrates the mighty United States military, its mightiest ships, the mightiest warship in human history, seemingly unsinkable, seemingly unbeatable. Uh, but like the superpower of Rome or other powers before it, it can fall. Its morale can be rotted from the inside, as you mentioned, Andrew Miller, and its communications and technology on which it so heavily, heavily re relies can be attacked, as you brought to us there, Jeremiah Jacques. We appreciate that. We appreciate the panelists bringing us that information. Ahead is our panel discussion. Stay with us.
Welcome back to Trumpet Hour. I'm Philip Nice. This week, the topic most deserving of a more involved discussion from our panel is the Ukraine war, and particularly the situation in the devastated city of Bakhmut. Jeremiah, you're our Asia watcher. Can you give us the who, what, when, where in that city? Yes, Bakhmut, Ukraine it has been the location of the longest battle and the bloodiest battle of the Russian war on Ukraine. I believe it's also the bloodiest infantry battle fought in Europe since World War II. Um, fighting raged there for about 10 months with some of the most, you know, just grueling and vicious combat you could imagine. The Russians and particularly the Wagner mercenary group used what we've come to call meat waves to great effect here. These attempts to just overwhelm the Ukrainians with vast numbers of, you know, poorly trained Russian troops. Um, and even though Russia lost ground in the periphery of Bakhmut, where its flanks had been, they now effectively control the city of Bakhmut itself. So this city, it was once home to 71,000 people. It was thriving, even, even picturesque, famous for a unique kind of champagne made from some grapes that were grown nearby and famous for nearby salt deposits. But now it's just surreal to see the images of what this city has become. It is Toyu and Boyu, utterly destroyed and ruined. Ten months of Russian aggression has made this one of the world's most ruined cities. And uh, the reports say that not a single building was left undamaged. Most of them are at this point, just shells of concrete, in many cases still smoking from artillery blasts and phosphorus bombs. Um, and besides Russian soldiers, really the only signs of life you see are the occasional abandoned dog just scavenging around for something to eat. So this is liberation. This is a city that Russian forces have liberated from the gay, drug-addicted Ukrainian Nazi demons. You know, that's how, that's how the Russians talk about the people of the nation that they're invading, and that's how they justify a lot of their violence. And now the Russians are pointing to the smoldering ruins of Bakhmut, and they're calling this a liberated city and a major victory. So, you know, depending on who you talk to, this is either the most significant victory since, I don't know, the Battle of Trafalgar, and it means Russia's now going to go on to conquer all of the Donbass very quickly. Or others say this was a Pyrrhic victory that came at a stunning cost to Russia, and it actually means little beyond symbolism. And in fact, it may have trapped many Russian forces in an area that they won't be able to hold for very long. Um, those in this latter category say that Bakhmut could soon go the way of Kherson and Kharkiv and Izium. You know, those are locations that Russia captured early in the war, but then lost to Ukrainian counteroffensives. So the fog of war hangs thick. And so I think that we'll just have to see in the weeks ahead whether Bakhmut becomes a staging ground for meaningful Russian offensives deeper into Ukraine or not. You know, time will tell better than any speculation. You mentioned the Wagner Group, their employer of thousands and thousands of former criminals and other mercenaries that they've unleashed on this city. Mihailo Zekic, you've got some observations about uh, the Wagner Group and its leader. Yes, well, the Wagner Group is led by a man named Yevgeny Prigozhin, or Prigozhin, for uh, if anybody wants to pronounce it the non-Slavic way. Uh, he's the man uh, Mr. Jacques mentioned earlier in the program about uh, how he has been saying some things that surprising he didn't uh, sip some tea with polonium about it. He's uh, uh, Russian President Putin has been 
talking about how this is a victory for Russia. He congratulated the Wagner Group. He congratulated the regular Russian army. Uh, Prigozhin just uh, took credit for the Wagner Group, said that this was our meat grinder. We liberated it ourselves. Uh, Prigozhin's a longtime um, former or current associate of Putin. He was formerly uh, the owner of a restaurant that uh, Putin was uh, very partial to in St. Petersburg. His nickname is Putin's Chef. Uh, but regardless of how long, maybe the length of their relationship has gotten him to be a bit too casual and embolden him to say some things that most people in Russia wouldn't be able to get away with. Um, and a May 24th interview with a pro-war uh, blogger in Russia, he said some other things that are a bit eye-opening. He uh, talked about how um, you're getting like tens of thousands of uh uh people in russia they're losing family because of this war in you in ukraine that uh the elites uh, uh the higher ups the people around putin's inner circle their kids aren't uh, getting slaughtered and you you might see a revolution even in russia just like 1917 uh as mr Jacques mentioned before but i mean you can't say that to, uh, and openly on the internet for everybody to see about people like Vladimir Putin. Putin has, in the 20-plus years he's been in office, he has a track record of going after people that say bad things about him. And furthermore, you can even look at the... I mean, our editor, Chief Mr. Fleury, has talked about how Putin has a track record just like Stalin. He, and he, writ, he wrote that in the in our in the prince of russia booklet that we uh talk about often uh stalin was pretty notorious for purging anybody like that you know like if, if a a fly buzzed in his ear that this guy might be uh doing something that he doesn't like even if he was a like you know generals or politicians or old guards of the revolutions he was famous for the uh, uh executing them and especially when you see the wagner group this private so-called military that's putting putin's own army to shame and publicly talking about it i mean that can't be seen as anything but a threat to putin's power um you think about people like adolf hitler he had a similar power jostling with ernst rome the head of the stormtroopers stalin himself had a similar jostling with leon trotsky the the head of the red army when you start uh, controlling your own little army autonomously from the dictator and start saying that kind of things like that, you're asking for trouble. So we'll see how long Prigozhin lasts, but who knows, maybe down the road he might end up uh, killed with an ice pick in Mexico uh, at some point. So Putin seems to be on the back foot in some ways, depending on who you listen to. But editor-in-chief Gerald Fleury, as you point out there, has said that he is going to remain in power and drastically, drastically grow in power. So an apparent victory for Russia, for Russian mercenaries. How is Ukraine pushing back along with its allies, Andrew Miller? Yeah, well, from America's standpoint, at least, this is kind of an interesting story because it is a, a wake-up call that we can't just take <laughs> Ukraine's victory for granted. I mean, Russia's gaining ground again, and the Biden administration has responded to that with another $375 million aid package to Ukraine. Uh, they've also vowed to give Ukraine a more ammunition and armored vehicles to just help it push back against Russia. Uh, although um, 
it does definitely take a lot of willpower to do something like that. And when you start looking at some of the the Ipsos polls put down by the uh, University of Maryland, you're seeing some indications that uh, only about 46% of Americans believe that we should only keep supporting Ukraine for another year or two. Uh, if you ask, like, how many want to, like, keep supporting Ukraine as long as it takes, that's only about 38%. Uh, and there's a partisan divide with that as well, with probably the majority of Repub – a uh, small majority of Republicans saying that, like, well, we should only keep supporting them for a year or two more. Uh, and then with – and then de more Democrats supporting Biden saying that, like, well, we should just do this as long as it takes. Uh, so it definitely shows <laughs> that if this is a protracted war – uh, there is a good chance that uh, America's willpower may give at some point in the future. And uh, what's interesting from just like a prophetic standpoint is like all the way back in the 1950s, uh, when America didn't finish the job in North Korea, let the North Korean regime stay in power during the Korean War, uh, Mr. Armstrong cited Leviticus, 19, uh, Leviticus 26 and verse 19 about God breaking the pride of Israel's power to make a prediction that America would never win another war. And we haven't yet. I mean, it's like the closest you might come is like the Gulf War, which just really created more turmoil in the Middle East. And so that's really kind of what we kind of expect to see in Ukraine, because America doesn't, despite the aid packages they're announcing this week, is not likely to have the willpower to actually see this through to a conclusive Western victory. So like many of you, we've been monitoring the war in Ukraine for some time, including the situation back moot. And one of you wrote in on Monday mentioning a comment we made about this conflict, about Russia being on the back foot in the back moot conflict, and recommending a perspective from Colonel McGregor quoted on the blog Redacted. So we appreciate, really do genuinely appreciate uh, an engaged uh, listener like yourself and uh, in any slugfest one fighter is on the back foot than the other uh, but we want to take a look at the situation in Bakhmut what it means and uh, and where it's headed Jeremiah yes uh, yeah as you said that's great to hear someone taking a, a close listen to the to the show there and um, I had mentioned last Friday on the show that um, not in the war in general or even in Bakhmut in general but in the periphery of the city of Bakhmut reports at that time including reports from Prigozhin the gentleman that uh, Mihailo Zekic was just discussing there said that Russia was backing you know backing away in the periphery but I also said that they were advancing into the city center, which I believe that was probably accurate. And of course, here we are seven days later, and it looks like the Russian advance gained more momentum since then. And the uh, the Ukrainians, from what I can tell, they're struggling to hold what they even had on the kind of the flanks or the the periphery there of the city. So, um, yeah, it's it's hard to say which way this will go. As I mentioned a moment ago, this this could be a location that Russia is able to use now to stage further offensives, or it may end up being a location that they find very difficult to hold on to. We'll just have to see how it pans out. Yeah, and so like we said, a war and the, let alone the fog of war, you know, is is a confusing thing to try to peer into. But we have on Trumpet Hour something that we are looking for to happen to be the outcome of this. Though the immediate future, though imminent, is obscure, as Churchill said. Uh, we actually don't have such obscurity with the long term result of what's happening in this uh, city and in this 
conflict. Yeah, that's right. Um, Trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry, he believes because of Bible prophecy that one thing we can be sure of is that Vladimir Putin will stay in power and he'll actually go on to lead Russia and Asia in much larger wars than this current one. And that's mainly because of a passage in Ezekiel 38 and 39. This passage talks about a specific individual. If you read it in the New King James Version, he's called the Prince of Rosh. And Mr. Flurry has said that Vladimir Putin is this prince. So because of that, he says that we should expect Putin and his regime to survive the war. But that being said, when Mr. Flurry last wrote about this in the Trumpets June-July 2023 edition, he did leave room for Russia to lose this specific war. Just a little bit of room, but I'll, I'll read a bit of his article here. It says, From what I see in prophecy, we should expect Russia most likely to win the war and for Putin to remain its leader. However... Even if Russia loses this specific war, it's conceivable that the nation could regroup and Putin could remain in power and still lead Asian nations in future wars, which means the overall prophecy in Ezekiel 38 and 39 will still come to pass. So whether Putin and his forces appear to be on the back foot or not, whether Putin himself looks frail or whether he's under uh, criticism from a, a powerful uh, mercenary leader. Uh, we are looking for Vladimir Putin to remain in power, to grow in power, to lead not only uh, Russia, but uh, a, an entire Asian alliance. And you can find that in the Prophesied Prince of Rosh booklet by Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry. So that brings us to the end of the hour and the end of this week's Trumpet Hour episode. We thank you for listening and for sending in your thoughts on the war in Ukraine, on the news, on the issues, on the show overall. We appreciate the thank yous of various kinds that we have received. You know who you are. But we really appreciate the close listen, uh, the engaged listening uh, to the show, to the, the, the actual events that are unfolding, and really encourage you to Listen closely, watch the news closely, and email us your thoughts. Let us know what you think, whether you concur, whether you differ, uh, whether you have a source that you'd like us to consider. Uh, we really appreciate uh, all of our listeners and those who write in to letters at the trumpet.com. Uh, letters at the trumpet.com has capacity to receive many, many, many more emails. We've got that capacity, so let's let's fill it up. We thank our panel, Jeremiah Jacques, Andrew Miller, Mihailo Zekic, and Richard Palmer. And we thank Parker Campbell and Jesse Hester for engineering and production. I'm Philip Nice, and that is your Week in Review. Thank you for joining us this week on Trumpet Hour. Trumpet Hour.